Um, again, the kiddos are staying uh, in here with us today, and I'm excited um, about that and excited to see some of the notes the uh, kids make during the service. A lot of them after the service come and show me what they've, uh, what they've drawn, their little masterpieces, and I like that. Uh, if you've got uh, a Bible with you or an app on your phone or some uh, f- way of following along, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Um, and that's where we will spend most of our time, and we'll get to Psalm 77 that uh, Tracy just read. So when we started a church, last week uh, I kind of gave an overview of who we're about. We're to be uh, disciples and family and missionaries, and we see those identities, and we were in Romans 12, and that kind of wrapped up a, uh, a series that we've been doing um, on uh, just missional living and finding our oikos and all these things. And man, I just went home after last week just really burdened that we have missed something. Um, and so prayed all week and Jason and I talked multiple times and um, we took a quick trip over to Dallas for a church planting uh, training thing and they were talking about this topic and just seemed like I was surrounded with it. So uh, we're going to be focusing on today is just uh, our heart of love for God. When we started the church, uh, we really focused, I think a first season when we were starting, we were trying to just kind of get our bearings who we were as a people. If you were with us in those early days, I think we really focused on serving the city. Most of the churches that I've been a part of didn't take, you know, we had like a serve day like once a, a year where we would like all go serve the city, but we wanted that to be a regular part of our DNA. And so uh, it just so happened that the hub was starting about the same time we were. We, were, we partnered with Cassie. Um, we would serve the city as a whole church. We would go down there uh, at least once a month, sometimes more frequently than that, and we would serve. And then through that season, um, after we had kind of gotten started and all those things, we kind of switched, and I think our focus was community. Like, what does it mean to be family? And so we started our community groups, and we really worked at loving each other well and loving each other deeply, and we talked some about that last week, just loyally and deeply. We would really love each other. What does that mean that we love each other past like a Sunday experience? What does it mean to do life with one another and really love each other? Um, and then again, this, uh, this last season, we've really focused on um, probably the last year and a half, this, this idea of mission. Like, what does it mean to really join God in his missionary work? We heard, we, you hear us use these terms all the time, that we are God's missionary people, that we're missional and all these things, right? <coughs> and I think the danger, excuse me, I think the danger in all of these, and these are all really good things and we should do all of these, the danger is that we miss the heart of God in this. The dangers we, we, we miss the heart of God, that we start doing work for God, but miss the heart of God, and we don't do it out of overflowing love for God. Ryan Sanders wrote a book um, that we all read as a staff, and in it, he kind of summarized this idea of uh, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathos. I put those words on the screen for you, I think, so that you can kind of like follow me there, but... Uh, orthodoxy is is this idea of um, of correct teaching, right? That uh, this correct teaching that we're all about, and this is really what the reformers and the Bible Church and even Southern Baptist uh, Presbyterians have all kind of been this idea of correct teaching. And then there's an idea of, uh, of of orthopraxy. This is correct action. This is us actually living out. This is what we've been talking about. This idea of oikos, living out the mission of God, meeting felt needs, loving each other, bringing the gospel. And then there's this idea of orthopathos, which is this correct emotion, right? And um, then, then his little quote, while the reformers continue to fight for orthodoxy, the Catholics hold up orthopraxy. We see this hospitals, 
Uh, you know, even in our city, like a lot of the hospitals we have are Catholic-oriented. And then the Pentecostals cry out for orthopathos, this idea of feeling and emotion. And the truth is, like a three-legged stool, if we don't have all three of those, we're not really a healthy church. We're, we're a little lopsided in one or the other. And so, um, and I feel like this is us as a church, and we're trying to do all those things. But I feel if we're not careful, we're going to miss the heart of God. We're going to be doing all this work for God, but not out of this overflowing love of what he's doing in us. And I love the passage in Revelation 2. We're going to kind of seek to uh, answer this question is how do you maintain this passionate love for God? How do you not uh, veer off one way or the other, get focused on one or two or, 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 these, or the third thing here? And that's what we see, right? And even in these denominationals, they've been created out of desiring to run after this one thing. But ultimately, if they're not all together, then we really miss the picture of who God is. So how do you do this? How do you grow and walk with God for years and years without becoming cynical or jaded? How do you embrace the hurt of church? You know, uh, my dad used to say this all the time, especially as I was training to be a pastor that, uh, that we're to be the shepherd of the sheep and beware that sheep bite, and they do. Many of you have been sidelined in the Christian faith, not by from outside the church, but inside the church. Friendly fire is what has sidelined you. Someone has stabbed you in the back or hurt you deeply. And how do you keep going, working for God, and out of the overflow of your heart, how do you do this without growing cynical or jaded or bitter over the years? And this is the... This is the same thing the church at Ephesus is going through. The book of Revelation starts out with these letters to churches, and I encourage you to read all of them. They're all really good. But this church at Ephesus, let's just jump in there in, uh, in, in verse 1 to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Those are pretty amazing commendations to start off on this church at Ephesus. To give you a little context of the church at Ephesus, one, they have the book of Ephesians written to them, maybe, maybe the greatest theological uh, literary piece, right, that starts with the chapters. I'm a little biased. I just love the book. But start with three chapters talking about who God is and what that means and what Christ has done and then how we're to live out of, uh, out, of, out of who we're being changed into. It was planted by Paul. Later, it was pastored by Timothy. The letters, First and Second Timothy, were written by Paul to Timothy while he was pastoring this church. Timothy, Paul's true son in the faith. They had some incredible help from Aquila and Priscilla, this incredible uh, ministry couple that had this like gift of prophecy and encouragement. So they spent a, a considerable amount of time there. John the Beloved, who actually wrote uh, um, John, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then also Revelation, um, probably pastored this church at some time. And 40 years later, after this church had arised and they had changed really the culture of, uh, of, of Rome and their worship of this uh, goddess Artemis and all kind of things, right? This was like this incredible church. The founding leaders moved on. They went through incredible persecution. And this is their letter to them. 
And there's these commendations, commendations that he kind of starts out with. And you can imagine just listening to this letter being read from God, right, to the church. What if we got such a letter? And I would say, listen, I don't know how this happened, but we got this letter from God, uh, you know, just came in the P.O. box. And, uh, and I want to read this to you. And you can imagine them sitting up on the edge of their seats, listening to what God has to say about their church. And, and there's several just phenomenal things. First, that you're... Uh, your, your toil and patient endurance. Like this was hard work and they were trying to bring Christianity to a, to a place where it didn't uh, grow very well. That for every 10 units of effort, they would see very little growth. As, you know, the, you've been in those seasons where you're just like working against the grain or going against the wind. Christianity had also become a scapegoat for all kinds of things. The different leaders of Rome was blaming uh, the Christians for the burning of Rome, and just anything else that would happen. There was this deep hatred for Christians at this time. And in the midst of that, imagine that you just walk out of this uh, place tonight. We live in, and we're, we're post-Christian, but still Christianity is a favorable thing here. We would, what if we walked out of here and everyone was against us because we had spent time in here, because we identified with the people of God. Deep hatred for Christians, but yet this church in Ephesus, their toil and patient endurance through that was something that God says, I've noticed and you're doing really good at that. Second commendation was, you cannot bear with those who are evil. It says that they are, they're holy. That they had, they had stood against those that had tried to come in and demoralize things. There was rampant immorality in the city. And in the midst of that, they maintained this integrity in the midst of extreme temptation. And then that they would hold to true doctrine, another commendation says there that they had, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. If you remember when Paul was leaving, he said, listen, there are going to be some people that come in. They're going to be like, like wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're going to try to, with their words, they're going to try to winsomely attract you away to some false doctrine. Be careful. Don't follow those people, but stay true to the gospel that I've spoken. That's what these people are doing. You can almost imagine the church and a new guy gets up to preach, and he starts preaching, and then so-and-so stands up over here, and someone else over here, like, listen, wait a minute, no, no that's not true. Nope, you're false. Kind of like, uh, like, uh, like, the, like the Apollo. Y'all used to watch the, uh, the show Apollo, and they're like, woo, it would go on. Yeah, no, that was just me, okay. <laughs> that kind of thing's happening, right? And they're like, nope, nope, false prophet, out of here, buddy. We're not listening, we're not listening to you. Show my agent here a little bit, sorry. Um... They held the true, true doctrine. They held strong against bad theology. They, they held strong against mission creep. And in, in addition to that, another commendation is just that they're hard work. Patiently enduring and bearing up. That, that hard work it literally means enduring to the point of exhaustion. Their endurance, they're still going strong. There's no real end in sight. You know, any of us can struggle for a month or even a season, but when you have a really hard life, season after season after season, and you look back over a decade of your life, and it has been so difficult, this is, what is, is, this is the culture that this church is in, and they're still going strong. This is not a struggling church. They're enduring patiently, and they're, what does it say, that they're not growing weary. I love that in, in, in the end of verse 3. Bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. 
You can imagine the church reading this letter. Of course, we know we've, we've maybe even have read past it, but even that, right? So, you know, the church feeling pretty good about themselves. They may have even broke out in uh, applause for themselves. You know, like, man, we're killing it. You're right. Not growing weary, holy, kicking out them false prophets. We're enduring. We're working hard. We're holding a true doctrine. All the good things. The things that I pray even over our church here. And yet the letter takes a turn. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand itself represented the very presence of Jesus. This church had the best pastors. They had incredible cultural impact. They had amazing resources. They had the very book of Ephesians written to them. They had supernatural power at work around them all the time. They were a church in revival. And yet somehow they had wandered from the love and loving God, passionate love of God. And Jesus doesn't just slap him on the wrist. He said, this is such an important thing to me that if you don't return to the reason that we started this whole thing out of your love for me, if you don't return to that, I'm taking my name off the sign. I'm taking my presence out of the building. This will no longer be a church anymore. It might be a social club. It might be a weekend gathering, but it won't be a church. Here's a few warnings I think we see as we apply this letter, and we're going to get, uh, we're going to be in it some more, but this, as we try to apply this to us, I think the first warning is this, don't let the fruit distract you from intimacy with Jesus. Don't let the fruit distract you from intimacy with Jesus. So you're intimate with Jesus, you're walking with him, he's changing you, and that naturally produces fruit. But when the fruit comes, it can actually rob you of the intimacy in a similar way that this happens in marriage, right? You remember life before kids? I know the kids are in here. Kids, we love you deeply. Remember life before kids where you just like talk to each other on the phone all the time and every night was date night, right? You didn't even have to find a sitter. You had this white hot love for each other. You talked hours on the phone. You preferred each other. Deep affection. And then you had kids, and the kids become this thing that they, they, have, they have needs. They, some of them were in my room early this morning with needs, right? And they, you get physically tired and emotionally tired. And if you're not careful, you'll slide into co-parenting and you'll do that until your kids leave the house for college. And then you look up at each other and think, man, who are you? Like your wife, your husband is a stranger to you because you've been you were intimate that led to the fruit of your intimacy being kids, and somewhere along the way you lost the intimacy with your spouse. Let, let me give you another illustration from even what we've been talking about, your mission or oikos. So you're praying that God would send people. We were praying as we even planted this church. I was praying God, you know, get God-sized vision. We would change. We would, we would bend even the culture of the Western church because of what God's going to start here. We would pray that, and then God brought people. And it brought people with a lot of baggage and a lot of issues. 
Many of you are here today, right? And including myself, like you got people and he answered your prayer and he changed people's lives, but they also came with the remaining sin in their life. And so you feel this urgency that you have to, you have to be a pastor and address all of these issues. And so, you know, early mornings and late nights and these meetings and this desperate need for work and discipling these new converts, your soul becomes weary, you end up sacrificing the very thing that led to the fruit. The fruit distracts you from being intimate with Jesus. And I don't know if that's just our culture, if that's been the way that it's always been, but I think that's really one of the first warnings is don't let the fruit distract you. You see this in the life of Jesus that he didn't. On numerous occasions, there were lines of people lined up waiting for ministry, and he had to walk away from them. He would escape so that he could go spend time with the Father because he knew that intimacy with the Father was what drove everything. Here's the second warning. First warning, don't let the fruit distract you from walking with Jesus. The second warning is don't let the fruit become the reason you walk with Jesus. Jason and I were talking to our buddy Aaron Clayton about this on Tuesday. You know John 15. I'll put it on the screen real quick. It says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Just so we're all clear, there's no fruit without abiding. Right? Your, your need's not partial. It's total. Like, you cannot manufacture an apple. Even with the new 3D printers, you can print an apple, but it has no nutritional value to anyone. Right? There's no way you can manufacture it, but an apple tree does it normally. There's no way we can manufacture spiritual fruit. We have to go to Jesus, being connected to the vine, and then the overflow of that is fruit in our life. But here's the dangerous switch. If we're not careful, we let the fruit become the reason we walk with Jesus. Jesus, to us, sometimes, if we're not careful, becomes means to fruit instead of the end in itself is walking with Jesus. We know we can't have fruit without abiding, So we abide in order to get the fruit, but not in order to be with Jesus. And this was the sin at Ephesus, and it's this subtle shift, but a deadly one. God is saying, don't leave me. You like miracles, but I'm the miracle maker. You like the mission, but I'm the cause. You like doctrine, but I literally am the truth. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at first. This is his remedy. I think we can all say that we've been guilty at times of losing our first love. This is what God just burned in my heart this week. That We've been a church that really does some really cool things. And when we talk about all that God's doing in our church and what he's doing through you and we're feeding the homeless and tutoring kids and we're reaching out to our oikos and we're throwing parties to bless other people and we're doing all this work. Yet I wonder how much of it is really from an overflow of what God has done through us. When's the last time you've just been so caught up in the love of God that you just, that you couldn't go on? When's the last time you met with God early in the morning through his word and You were distracted from time before you knew it. An hour had passed and you were just hanging with Jesus. When's the last time you tried to to pray and conversate with him without looking at your watch to see how long it had taken? When's the last time you were so overcome with the depths of your sin and the supremacy of who God was that you you were just overcome with grace? 
This is the church at Ephesus. The remedy that Jesus tells them, really three quick things, is to remember from where they had fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Remember from where you had fallen. The church at Ephesus was birthed with this incredible work of God that resulted in the church having this deep affection for God and for each other. Ephesians 1 verse 16. I do not cease. I don't think this is on the screen. This is just, I'm just going to read this picture of this early church. Paul praying for them. I don't cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you, would, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? You get this ginormous picture of what God's doing and then being enthralled in it. And this prayer of Paul for them and we see this resulting in their lives radically changed. And this is the remedy from Jesus is remember from where you'd fallen. Somehow in the mire of doing good, good Christian work, they started to work for God instead of working from the overflow of his work in them. Church, please don't, don't dismiss this. This is where we are as a church. That we get up every day and we put on our, our big boy britches or big girl britches and we're just going to press through it like a good running back. We're going to put our head down and we're going to plow through this thing and we're going to do the things that we should do and we're going to act the way that we should act. And we're going to love on people because that's the command of Jesus. But very rarely is it really from the overflow of our heart. We focus so much on orthodoxy. That we've missed the whole idea of orthopraxis, of pathos was just really walking with him. This church in Ephesus began to put the cart before the horse. And they were overcome with the spirit of Martha, who thought it would be much more beneficial to make sure everyone had a drink than to just sit at the feet of Jesus and drink in from him. This phrase has grabbed me all week, the spirit of Martha. When people come and guest, as guests come at our church, they, they love the DNA of serving. Like you're just, this is our church. Like you're not going to sit around and not serve. Like we've got some kind of Olympic record by how quick we stack these chairs. We can turn this whole thing around in 30 minutes. People come and visit us like, how do we get our people to do that? It takes our cargo team three hours to tear down. And I don't know what it is. I just know that... You know, we just get to work. That's just what we're going to do. And some of that's just my nature. It's hard for me to, we'll have a much deeper conversation if we talk while we're doing something than if I just stare at you in the eyes. That just makes me feel weird, right? Like, let's just, let's just go dig a hole out there and we'll talk while we dig. I need something to do. And I think that's kind of the nature of our church. But if we're not careful, the spirit of Martha will grab us. And on a Sunday, when we come to gather together, there will be more our attention will be more on what we're doing and how we're doing it and the aesthetics. and It will be on what God's doing in us. Anyone guilty? Spirit of Martha. He says, remember what you used to be. Remember the grace of God in your life. Remember all that he's done and what he's doing. Sometimes we just forget. That's what Tracy read in the 
Psalm 77 passage. It's the psalmist going over saying, I'm going to remember the deeds of the Lord and I'm going to remember the wonders of old and I'm going to ponder your work and meditate on your mighty deeds again and again. And he said, I'm just going to just remember. Maybe, maybe you, came to kid, uh, you came to Christ as a kid and you don't remember what life is really like before Christ, but maybe some of you who came as an adult, you remember how selfish you were, how depraved you are. And as we walk with God, we should remember again and again that the depths of depravity goes far deeper than we even thought it went. The book of Job. Job has been complaining and he's walking through this extremely difficult time. You remember when, when it kind of changes, he's been asking God all these questions and then God comes and actually starts talking. You remember this? And God says, Job, where were you when I hung the stars in the place and when I formed the mountains out of the ocean where were you when I you know made these animals these majestic animals this this idea of like Job you need to remember who you are that you're not the God of your domain try to put really Job give him some perspective and I think that's good for us to remember the last time we really blew it and we turned to God in repentance and his grace just came rushing down on us like a waterfall what does Jesus say when he's talking to the Pharisees? Who, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And this is the problem. As we walk with God, we forget the depth of which we've fallen. We forget that. We kind, of, we kind of start thinking better about ourselves. And the stench of our sin is removed from us. Jesus says, listen, you've left your first love. The first kind of step is to remember from where you've fallen. The second, he tells them, is to repent. Repent is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I know this has become a bad word in today's church, but it's not. It's a beautiful word. If you talk to people who really walk with Jesus, I mean, you know those people, that you just get around them. These people are like walking with Jesus. They'll tell you that they repent all the time. Because the more you walk with him and you're exposed to his holiness and his goodness and his supremacy, you're reminded of your finiteness and your depravity. It makes you turn to him again in grace. There's a myth, and a lot of people think that spiritual maturity looks like an emotionless, stoic posture with really good theology and stories of old. But that's not true. Spiritual maturity is not a cold heart. It's childlike wonder. You remember childlike wonder? You see it in your kids all the time. We were, we were at a little gathering with some friends yesterday, and one of the kids found a frog. A gross frog, right? It's just it's this toad, you know. And all the kids, like, followed the frog around the whole place. They just couldn't get away. Just like childlike wonder, like, we found a frog. And I thought, you know what? That's what I'm getting for Christmas is a frog. I can find one of those for free. Entertain them far, far longer than anything else I could, I could purchase. This is why I try to still hang out with our teenagers. They still have this childlike wonder. They still believe that God can change the world. They haven't grown so cynical over time and jaded in their faith. This is why I like getting around church planters because they still think they're going to change the city in a year. They're going 90 miles an hour down the interstate. Then the jaded and cynical part of me says, oh man... They have no idea what's coming. 
but there's this little ember inside of me, excuse me, there's this little ember inside of me that agrees with them, kind of stirs my own faith of what God can do. We've got to repent of thinking that God's heart is not for us to passionately know him. Listen, church, we are passionate about a lot of things. And we'll get up and celebrate and we will make time for whatever we think is important and we will give our whole heart to that and we'll save money for that and we'll create margin and we'll take off weekends and time for work and we'll do all these things to give our heart and life to the things that we're in love with. But asking us to like have our affections deeply stirred by God is just... Even this last week, one of my kids, I forgot... We were doing a little devotion at the table or I was reading a passage or praying something. I did it and it was too long and one of my kids like complained about it. Dad, you have to go so long with that? And it's terrible to be married. I mean, to be a kid, of a, to be a pastor's kid. I just reminded them of the old time in the Old Testament where Ezra took the book of the law and the church stood, and, and stood on their feet and he read it for 12 hours and then they showed back up the next day and revival broke out. They didn't like the lesson very much, but... got to repent. Listen, this repentance is not for someone else. Repentance is for you. I'm not speaking to your husband or your wife or, or your kids, although we've all got a lot to repent of. I'm speaking to you. I feel like the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. You've got to repent of unforgiveness in your life, and bitterness. Maybe there's just lingering sin that you've let creep into your life and you've called it a struggle for a while but it's really sin you know it is and it's separating you from the heart of God and finally it says to return to the things you did at first this is so hard when you feel far from the love of God in your mind you think well I I want to feel the love of God again before I respond to God again one author used this illustration to explain it it's like a person who's freezing out in the cold and they're looking through the window. And they see a family inside around the fireplace and they're drinking hot cocoa and they're laughing. And the person outside who's freezing knows that if they go inside, they'll be warm. But it's like them saying to themselves, well, I want to feel warm before I actually go inside and get warm. And that's crazy. You get warm by going where the heat is. We understand that. In the same way, that your passions are stirred for Jesus out of your discipline to follow him in obedience. The feeling follows the obedience. We have to go back to the things that we did in the beginning that gave you life. There was a man at uh, Hillcrest, the church I used to serve at, named Dave Jacobson. And he was a missionary for a long time in some place. As a matter of fact, the first sermon I preached there, I used an illustration of a missionary and I told a wrong story about him because I had just told what I had heard and never read it. And he came up to me afterward and said, man, that was a great story you tell, but it was a lie. <laughs> I was like, what? how is it a lie? He's like, I was there. That didn't happen. I was like, oh, okay. Um, this guy, Dave, uh, just loved God. He was never too busy. He would come find me over in the youth building and he would come and sit down. And I was busy trying to do this. And he would look me in the eye and he would shake my hand and pull me real close to him. He would say, Luke, I want you to know that God loves you. I will shake my hand and head and agree. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. He said, no, 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 not the things you do. He loves you. God loves you. Do you know that God loves you? And he would just remind me of this. And his life was just overwhelmed. Whenever you'd ask him to pray on a 
service. We didn't ask him to pray very often because it took too long, to be honest with you. He would get up there. You ever seen anybody like this? And he would step up, begin to pray, and he would just start weeping. His heart was just so overwhelmed with God's grace. It was just such a love connection just to be in the presence before the people of God that he would just weep. Jesus says, return and do the things you did at first. What are the things you did at first? You remember that season of your life where you were passionately in love with Jesus? That you would sing maybe at the top of your lungs? That maybe when you were a teenager or in college, like this idea of forgiveness just overwhelmed you? And I think about the, the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember her, right? The Samaritan woman. And Jesus had this interaction with, with her. And you remember what happened as a result of the interaction? You know, Jesus says that I'm, God's looking for worshipers of spirit and truth. And the end of the thing, it says she left the water jar that she had come to get water and ran back to her village and told all these people, hey, you got to come meet Jesus. The guy told me everything about myself that there was no oikos strategy in place for her. She didn't have an oikos card. She wasn't praying for anybody. She was just incredibly lost. And then she met Jesus. And out of the overflow of her heart and her life, she ran back to her village and she had to tell everybody because her life was so incredibly changed. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with schedules or anything wrong with strategy. Those are good things. But to do those in an inauthentic way brings no power with it. There's no joy and everyone can see through that. Jesus gave them a warning and a promise. Look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. If you don't do these things, here's his conditional arrangement with them. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you go to a doctor and he refuses to treat you and he refuses to practice medicine, what do you do? You, you remove him. And if you go to a teacher who refuses to get up and teach and refuses to study and refuses to do what she's agreed to do or he's agreed to do, what do you do? You remove them. What do you do to a church that refuses to serve God out of the overflow of what he's done in their heart? What do you do? Jesus says, I'm going to remove it. If a church stops loving Jesus, it's no longer a church. Maybe a parachurch ministry, maybe a social club, maybe a gathering, but it's not a church. Jesus is not interested in a church that doesn't love him. Put all these things on the screen about orthodoxy and, 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 and orthopraxy and these things, and Jesus says, no, I don't want any part of that. As a matter of fact, he even says, listen, you who's singing to me, but you don't really mean it from the depths of your heart, it's like clanging cymbals in my ears. Like, I wish you would just stop. Because you're not being true. This is really the first step of discipline. God removes his presence from us. God loves you. He knows what's best for you. He's jealous for your heart. And when you refuse to follow him in obedience out of the overflow of your heart, out of love for him, the first kind of step of discipline is he removes his presence. We saw this happen with even David, right? As he's asked God to return joy of salvation to him in Psalms 51. My dad used to tell me that God is going to accomplish the work in you. I've used this illustration before. You get to choose whether he does it with sandpaper or chainsaws. 
Sandpaper is just the constant discipline that comes out of reading God's word. Every time you read God's word, if you read long enough, you'll find something that your life doesn't agree with, and you'll have to repent of those. And that's the, that's the godly sandpaper on your life molding you into the image of Jesus. But if you refuse to do that, God will accomplish the work that he's begun. But it's going to be more painful on your end. In the church, we have some real obstacles in front of us if we will have to deal with this. I don't think I put these on the screen, just kind of jotted them down as a pastor's heart for us. First, we're going to have to overcome busyness to delight in abiding with Jesus. We have to overcome busyness. And I'm, I'm guilty. I'm, I'm chief among sinners here. We fill our days with so much stuff that we kind of force Jesus to speak to us in three minutes. We sit down on the couch, we woke up late, the kids are up early. All right, Jesus, you got three minutes, like download. I need some kind of holy download that's going to get me through the day. Again, we're using Jesus as the means to some kind of fruit and not just in the end and of himself just to get to know him. We're going to have to overcome busyness. When's the last time you sat before him and just allowed him to speak to you without rushing? When's the last time you found the free 15 or 30 or 45 minutes in your day and instead of getting out your phone, you just said, man, this is awesome. I'm just going to sit here and talk to Jesus and let him speak to me. I remember when I was dating Ashley, we were some day, we may have just been early married and I just kept checking my watch. Not the thing to do. And she told me, you have somewhere else you need to be? Someone you'd rather be with? I was like, ooh, this sounds like a trap. Like, there was a football game coming on in a few minutes, and I wanted to get home for it. Another thing you don't do. Can you imagine a date like that where you're just constantly looking at your phone, looking at your watch, and just looking for some reason to get out of this conversation? That's how we treat God all the time. God, I need you to speak quick. I got things to do. I got, I got people to see. I got a job to do. We're going to have to overcome busyness, <clears throat> excuse me, to delight in abiding with Jesus. We're going to have to overcome the noise, secondly, to hear his still small voice. We get so much noise in our life. There was a survey two months ago, Nielsen took a survey. Nearly half an adult's day is dedicated to consuming content, it said. In fact, America's, Americans spend over 11 hours a day listening to, watching, reading, or generally interacting with social media. Behind the surge are the growing use of new platforms as well as the younger multicultural generations who leverage them. 11 hours a day. Can you imagine? And we think that we don't have time to hear from God. And for 11 hours a day, we're watching TV or the radio or podcasting or flipping through social media. And this is what we share with friends, right? Even this morning, I was sharing with a friend a song that I had heard. And, and you know, I was sending him the YouTube. Hey, you got you to check out this song. This was incredible. Like, we, we, we share these things. We love. When's the last time you showed up here early for Sunday or at Huddle? And he said, listen, I just can't let's, let's stop all the small talk. I got to tell you what Jesus has, been, has told me. I was walking with Jesus this week, and this is what he downloaded in my heart, or I was reading the word, and this phrase just like overwhelmed me to the point that I couldn't get past it. When's the, when's the last time we heard from God and talked about that? We bragged on what God was doing in us. Not all the things that we were doing for him, but in us. 
If I were to ask you specifically, what, what's God told you lately? When's the last time you saw God move in an incredible way? When's the last time that God really burdened your heart for something and you, 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 you responded in obedience to that? When, when's the last time? I feel like, as Tozer said, sometimes we feel like the, the altar is, is, is growing cold. And so all we do is just rearrange a bunch of rocks. And instead of asking for God to send the fire down and really capture our hearts again. And we're so busy, so much noise that we couldn't hear God even if he was speaking to us. And he is speaking to us. We're just not slowing down long enough to hear him. Listen, God's not mowing you down to try to get your attention. It says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. And finally, we have to overcome busyness to delight in him. We have to overcome the noise to hear his still small voice. And we have to open our hearts to him. Most of us don't want to hear what God has to say to us anyway. Our hearts aren't set on obedience. Often when we do come to God, we do try to walk with him. We want to choose the direction that we walk in. You ever had an argument with someone where you didn't even really care what they were saying? You were just trying to prove that you were right? This is the kind of thing that's going on. We come to God and say, God, I really don't want you to speak to me. I just want you to confirm what I'm already doing. This is how we mostly come to God. Let me wrap up with a little application for us. First, how do we cultivate deep passion ongoing for God? Ongoing passion for God. How do we cultivate in our life? I've told you this once before. I'm going to say it again, but I think we need three things, at least these three things. It's theology, biography, and liturgy. I talked to the teenagers about this at their D-Now this past year. I think it's got great application for all of us. First, theology, right thinking about God. Jen Wilkins says it this way, if we want to feel deeply about God, we must learn to think deeply about God. Ashley shared that with me, and I wasn't very impressed. She said, man, I thought that I got a little more out of that than you just got out of it, but it, 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 I got it. If you've even told me some things before and you think I'm unimpressed, it's because I have to think about things for a few days. I just got to kind of like let it just roll over in my mind a few times. Think about just the truth of that statement. If we want to feel deeply about God, we must learn to think deeply about him. Finding greater pleasure in God will not result from pursuing more experiences of him, she says, but from knowing him better. It will result from making a study of who God really is. I love this. Uh, John Eldred says this about this idea of knowing God more. Jesus came to reveal God to us. He is the defining word on God, on what the heart of God is really like, on what God is up to in the world, and what God is up to in even your life. An intimate encounter with Jesus is the most transforming experience in the human existence. To know him as he is, is to come home. To have his life and joy and love and presence cannot be compared. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. To be mistaken about him is the saddest mistake of all. To really cultivate this white hot passion ongoing for God, we have to know who he really is. Not who maybe we think about him or what we've learned about him, but what, who is he? When we go to the gospels, maybe you're 
just heart comes alive when you see God as he interacts with people through the person of Jesus. What is Jesus like and how does the Holy Spirit work? If we're honest, can we be honest? Most of us just aren't thrilled with Jesus. That's why it's a struggle to get up every morning because we're not thrilled with Jesus. You remember, you remember as a kid waking up like on vacation day or the first day of summer and at least my kids, they're up really early, way too early. Maybe even Christmas morning, right? That they're coming in at 3 a.m. And like, you're like, no, listen, we're not doing this at 3 a.m. Right? You just wake up with this eager anticipation. I just can't wait. And if we're honest, most of us just are not thrilled with the person of Jesus. If we're really honest, most of us could probably get to heaven one day and Jesus not be there and we would be okay. And I think that's a serious indictment on us. We need theology in our life. We need a study of who God is. We need a regular practice of knowing him. And this is what the, the gathering is good for. And this is, I, my heart hurts sometimes because people miss so often that they have these huge holes in their theology as we're walking through books of the Bible together. Not just theology, but you also need biography. You need real life examples and encouragement to continue to walk with the Father. This could literally be biographies of other great men and women. I've read books by Elizabeth Elliot and Joni Erickson Tata and George Mueller and Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and on and on. These, these books are so soul-stirring. I remember there was a time when I was complaining about all the work cargo sit, setting up. I was literally, I was just in a sour mood and I, I turned to one of these books and I think it was about Charles Finney who was this great revival preacher and he would ride on horseback from village to village through the night through torrential rains get there just in time to preach and he would open his word and preach god really convicted my heart of that it's we need these examples that have gone before us this great cloud of witnesses that have done this but more than that we need people in our life who model us model this for us my my dad was one of these who just no matter what happened like you know We'd been in some really difficult church situations, and he had every reason just to hate the church, but he didn't. He just loved it to the very end. He loved God in such a way that he was the one when I would, I would come around and said, hey, man, you ready, for, you ready for the game this weekend? And he would say, yeah, I am, but let me tell you this thing that God shared with me today. It's just so soul-stirring for me. This could be people who walk alongside you, people in your community group, people in your huddle. You need all these people. You need biography. You need somebody to put their arm around you and encourage you in this. And finally, you need liturgy. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. This was a letter to Timothy, who is the pastor of this church, who is completely discouraged remember what it says in timothy 1 6 tells timothy to fan into flame like you got to re-energize that thing man i know i know you've grown cold but there's some work that you need to do to to relight this this small ember liturgy literally means this formal rhythm of something it's something you do over and over again that begins to form you If theology shows us what loving God should look like, then liturgy is what helps cultivate our hearts to that. It helps keep our hearts turned towards him. 
It's a form or a rhythm by which we operate. Mostly it's used in talking about church services, but also about our lives. That same study that I mentioned earlier went on to say that the average adult checks their phone 74 times a day. If you check your phone 74 times a day, that's your liturgy. And that's forming you into a certain kind of person. It's the first thing you look at when you wake up, and it's the first thing you look at when you go to bed. It's the first thing anytime there's like a silent moment in the room or an awkward part in the conversation, especially as an introvert, it becomes a crutch for me. If there's any kind of quietness, my brain's not always engaged in something. It's just, let me pull out the phone and like numbingly like scroll through something. If we as adults are checking our phone 74 times a day, I hate to think what the generation our kids are coming up to that literally born with devices in their hands that we've got to, as parents and as followers of Jesus, we've got to be careful what our liturgy is, what, 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 what is forming us. What if every time there was silence in the car, you didn't pull out your phone, but you started quoting a verse you're memorizing for the week? What if, what if every time that there was a, a lull in conversation, you didn't, you didn't pull out to check your phone and something, but you began to pray for someone who's struggling? What if you woke up early and instead of getting into your phone, you opened God's word first thing up or you turned on some Christian worship music, you began to sing something that would cultivate your heart for God? This is what we need as liturgy. Several months ago, it was probably June Man, I just, to be honest with you, I was dealing with this sickness and I was just so discouraged. My heart was really far from God. At least it felt like that. When I pray, I felt like God was just a hundred miles away. And I talked to a friend of mine and I was telling him about this and he recommended the, the book. And I've mentioned it to you several times. This mountain rain book about what this guy did. He says in there in the book that he would get in his word every morning and he wouldn't shut the Bible until his heart was on fire. And that just like stirred in me. He would get in the word and he said, sometimes it just took three or four minutes and my heart was on fire for God. And I just couldn't wait to go out and from the overflow of my heart do ministry. But sometimes it would take hours. And I would have to read and read and pray that God would infuse a supernatural power through his Holy Spirit in me. Getting in the word and not shutting it until my heart's on fire. close with this illustration there's a church maybe the one of the oldest protestant churches in america is the moravian church they were planted by a group that came over from journey uh, germany in the late 1700s and they were having revival and god was doing this incredible thing in their churches in pennsylvania and so a friend came to visit them and they would wake up early in the morning and they would gather together. The neighbors would gather together and they would sing a few songs together. They would sing a song about God's faithfulness and his mercy new in the mornings. And they would go to work and they would work the fields. They would gather together for lunch and they would spend lunch praying with each other. And they would, they would close with singing together just these deep, even the psalms themselves that they would sing. And in the evenings that they would get together and they would thank God for this incredible day and they would sing again at the tops of their lungs about the greatness of God. And someone asked their leader, like, why do you do this? You're experiencing revival right now. You don't have to do all these extra things. Like the Holy Spirit is with you. And he says, you know what? We're fending off lukewarmness. I love that. Like there's this practice, there's this liturgy that should be in our life of fending off lukewarmness. 
Because naturally we're going to drift and naturally we're going to edge that way and we've got to take up the practice of fending off lukewarmness, of stirring our heart, of fanning into flame, as Paul would say to Timothy, this rhythm of maybe singing with your kids. I remember in seminary class, I didn't have a whole bunch of good seminary classes, but one of them I had was led by a retired Marine who had gone back to school and he was leading our preaching class. There was about six or seven of us in there and he wanted to stand and we would all stand, the six of us guys and the teacher and he brought some hymnals with him and we would turn to one of Luther's great hymns. A Mighty Fortress is Our God was one of his favorites and we would sing it. No accompaniment in the middle of this college room. Everybody's wondering what's going on. I thought it was so cheesy at first. I just thought, man, this is just dumb. Like, as it grew on, like it just captured my heart that we were singing to God. And this is a gift that God had given to us. It was a liturgy that we'd be, I began to walk in and it stirred my heart and affections for God again and again. And I, I don't know what that looks like for you. I feel like we got to take some steps, church of cultivating our heart for God, not just what we do for him. I want to pray. We're going to have communion in a minute. Communion, another one of these great liturgies of our faith. Forces us back to remember the cross every time that we meet of all that God has done for us, that we were sinners, helpless, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we remember that when we take communion and the life that we have in him now. But before we do that, I just want to give you some time just to kind of deal with God where you're at. Just ask God that he would speak to you about maybe even as Jesus told the church to remember from where you've fallen and to repent and to turn to things that turn to the things you did at first. Maybe you'd pray as even David prayed, Lord, search my heart. Let me know if there's any wicked way in me. You take some time to do that now. Maybe you're in this room and you're not a believer in Jesus, but you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to take a step of faith today. I would love to talk to you about that. I'll be standing in the back to pray with anyone. Maybe you're just walking through this incredible season of dryness. You just feel like you're in the wilderness and God is far from you. I'd love to pray with you. Lord, we confess that many of us are quick to action. We are quick to speak and we're really slow to listen. We have planned you out of our lives. That you are losing the war for margin in our life. Lord, and we ask for a season of repentance. Lord, that you would humble us even now as we pray, as we're still before you. You would speak to us very clearly, convict of sin that's there. Specifically convict, Lord, of what we need to repent of. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. Lord, and I pray for just a deep connection with you. Lord, that we would open your word and we would read it until we felt fire in our hearts. 
And as the couple said on the road to Emmaus, didn't our hearts burn within us when Jesus was speaking? Father, do what you need to in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for this reminder of communion, this outward picture of an inward reality that you died for us so that we may live. And as we take communion, that we're remembering your death and the life that you've called us to. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. You come when you're ready.